the road to Basra, there were lots of dead Iraqis. Was there? Mm. Yeah, there was. Yeah, just um, on the roadside. Oh, yeah, smouldering because smouldering. Yeah. And then an officer come to me and said, "Look, have you seen this? A multinational unit uh, gathering intelligence on war criminals for the hate tribunal. The Serbs, basically, who were the large majority there, were killing Muslims." Killing Christian, you know, and, and it was sectarian violence, basically. War crimes, uh, crimes against humanity. And when I got out there, it was like undercover. And I was put in the American sector, uh, and we got CIA guys in the team, got American SF in the team, Danish SF in the team, Italian Special Forces, all, all kinds of people living in this house, about eight of us. And uh, we went out and gathered intelligence. We were in a two-vehicle convoy, and uh, I was in the second vehicle with a uh, CIA guy, and we got T-boned and run off the road straight into someone's house. So drove straight through the side of someone's house. So the, the, the CIA guy had hurt, had hurt his leg and was screaming and revving the engine, and I switched the engine off, got the weapons, and ran back towards about 15, 20 Serbs who were running down the road armed, like not to help us out, do you know what I mean? Oh, my <laughs> um, goodness. I lived in an hotel called the Alhambra. It was used as the, basically as the line for the mortars from uh, Al-Qaeda. One night there was sort of some firefight and we went out onto the balcony and, and like, you know, the, the rounds were whizzing past literally on the balcony, <sighs> so it's like... I mean, there were rocket attacks and everything on the night time. It was it were horrendous. Yeah, yeah. There's the Taliban firing rockets, yeah. um, you know, on the night time. What, um, you just see them in the sky? No, no, they were, land, they were landing and uh, you, you could hear the explosions. It was like, you know, so, casual, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, rockets. <laughs> <flying>. <laughs> yeah, it was just so... They were landing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As rockets do. Yeah. <laughs> it was too fast and loose, you know. They were, they were, they were targeted all the time. There were things get, letters getting thrown of, over the, the perimeter wall because we had, we had two villas. And, um, you know, those letters were from Al-Qaeda saying, we know where you are, we know who you are, all this kind of stuff. One Sunday we'd been out and uh, it was like, yeah, you've got to come back straight away, come back now. So we, we come back and there was um, a vehicle shot to pieces in the, in, the, in the car park in the front of the villa with the tarpaulin over it and two dead bodies in it. Yeah. All right, we had a dinner with Neil and we are aware of some of what he's been up to around the world and it is mind-blowing. The story encompasses Germany, Bosnia, the Serbia, Ser <laughs> Algeria, Afghanistan, Luxembourg, <laughs> Baghdad, yeah. Oman, and, um, Brazil. <laughs> I think there's about 105 countries that I've worked oh in and, and lived in and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I've been about a bit. So, many of the military stories are fascinating, action packed, just like the police stories, just like the prison stories. <laughs> and Neil, like I said at the meal, it was absolutely mind blowing with Big Joe Egan. Shout out to Big Joe Egan for arranging this. You can check out his book and his podcast as well. All right, Neil. So, shall we go back to 
The mining village in South Yorkshire then, in 1971. 19, yeah, I was... Um, that's when I was born, January 1971, January the 27th. Um, uh, when I was first, I came out of the hospital and obviously um, the house in, in the mining village wasn't ready. Um, my, mom, my parents had bought it, but it wasn't ready. And I lived at my grandmother's for the first 12 months. Uh, once the house had been refurbished, then I moved there. Uh, and that was it, really. Um, and I spent the first 16 years there, went to school there. Massive um, sort of... Uh, comprehensive school more than a thousand pupils um but sort of all from a village so everybody knowing everybody um you know everybody went into the same pubs and things like that and then come 16 and a half it, um it's already been sort of decided and and, uh, and really set in stone that i would i would go into the army that's you know my education um i never really excelled at education um so it was decided that i would join the army uh and i went to sutton Caulfield, did the pre-select at that time, it was about three or four days, um, and got a date to join. Uh, and I joined as a junior soldier in September 1987. Um, I did six months basic training. Um, during that time, I boxed in the army as a junior soldier, was junior heavyweight champion. Um, and then moved on to uh, something called trade training. Uh, and what I did then was learned how to lay cable, joint cable, and like telecommunications type stuff. Uh, then from there, we went on to like driver training and then out to Germany. Were you this big when you joined the army? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was about, uh, I think I'm maybe six foot, six foot one. I'm just under six foot four now. So, so you wasn't like um, that. No, I wasn't like that. Now. And uh, a lot slimmer and, uh, <laughs> and wished I was now. But uh, but unfortunately, it's the, the age has caught up with me. So that's how it is. But yeah, I went out to Germany and... Um, Met a lot of interesting blokes, you know, but it, it just, there was something lacking. Um, and I come across a guy called Terry, who was far more senior than me. He introduced me to a, a, a Welsh guy who we'd been in a previous unit with, and they'd been SAS signalers. And it was rather impressive and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, uh, you know, this is this is uh, this is where I want to be. Type thing. I've got to get there. What is um, an SAS signaler? So the SAS um, go around the world doing operations, as you as you're probably aware of, mm -hmm. and they have um, a select group of people called the SAS signalers, special forces communicators now, um, and they travel with them and they go on the ground with them. Uh, they go in the buildings with them and all kinds of stuff, and they do the the signalling for the t for the team commander. Um, and that's that's what they do, and that's what that's what that's what I did. So um, prior to that, I hung about in Germany for four years, sort of. But there was massive drinking culture. I never really, I, I, of course, I did the drinking, but I never really <laughs> took to it. That, I was never that good at it. That's the. So um, I'd got my mindset on this SAS signaler thing. Um, but my dad went to school with a guy called Lawrence Gallagher, and Lawrence Gallagher was in the SAS. And he died in the Falklands. He died in an helicopter crash where 22 guys died. Uh, mm. So he was one of them. So I knew I had this sort of background knowledge about what went on and that type of thing and, and how sort of uh, special it was. And, uh, and that's that's where I ended up in around about 92. One of me and Wildman's friends tried to get into the SAS. This was a very <laughs> tough guy. Yeah. And he I mean, didn't he didn't pass. Right. It's not easy, is it? No, no, no. Can you, what what yeah. you got to do? So there's, um, 
a lot of um, aptitude tests, a lot of physical tests, um, a lot of training once you've done the, the physical tests. How intense is this training? Very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Describe, yeah. describe so, what you had to do. I mean, listen, I, I, I was never the fastest, but what I did have was the determination. Was it like so, that programme? Um, yeah. What but, was it? But, uh, where you train, you got... You've got to compete and do SAS training. I can't remember the name it's, of it, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's very, it's it's very similar. Like, we had know, a guest yeah. who was on that. Did you? Michael Maisie. He's been voted on the most handsome ever guest. <laughs> <laughs> Bring him on. <laughs> so, yeah, I, th I think I, I remember one of, the, one of them guys, uh, Bill Billingham. I, I do remember him. You know, he was around, around about the same time as me, um, kicking about. Um, and obviously gone on to do books and so on and so forth, you know, and, and uh, all credit to him, you know, and he's a great guy, to be fair. The others I'm not familiar with. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was intense. I mean, I, I, it took me three times to pass, so... Three times? Yeah, I, I went on the first one, um, failed towards the back end, stayed there, went on the second one, failed towards the back end on the same event, um, and then did it a third time and then <laughs> managed to scrape through, so... I'm surprised yeah. you weren't personal. <laughs> By doing it the first time. <laughs> yeah, I mean... So have you got to go into the, the water and things? Have you got to, like, swim through things? Um, no, there's a, there's a swimming test, but it's not... Oh, it, there's not, like, this, um, I don't know, underwater assault course or anything like okay. that. Oh. There's not. Um, but there is... Um, obviously, the, the, the physical test is all more or less running with weight on your back and a rifle over the Brecon Beacons and back and forth and checkpoint this, checkpoint that. Um, and there's always somebody there to do the timings and make sure that you're... You know you're within the times, and if you if you're not, it's just a case. You know, thank you very much, and and off you go. You know, and you. That's what, it. What that's was it. your first exposure to weapons? Um, at sixteen, when I joined the army, um, and then obviously it was the self-loading rifle and the SLR. Um, so yeah, that that was it. Really, I'd never. I mean, I'd seen an, an air rifle and an air pistol and things like that, but I'd never owned one. My 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 parents weren't wouldn't allow that, you know, so. So did you go on a range or something? Take us through your first day of shooting. Um, so th there's a lot of dry weapon training before you go on the range and, and do live firing. Um, What's a dry weapon? So, so that's basically you're in a classroom and you learn the characteristics of a weapon, the weight, its calibre and so on and so forth, what it can do, what it can't do, how to use it. And you go through probably 11 lessons or something like that. And you just keep doing those 11 lessons uh, and keep doing and these drills for load, unload, uh, in the event of a stoppage and the weapon stops firing, you do this, you do that, you do the other. Uh, and you just keep going through those all the time. And then eventually you go down the range and and obviously there's there's tons of, there's one conducting officer, but there's tons of safety staff and everybody's, because you're just young lads. So you, you're all managed extremely closely. Um, and that's where it starts. And then you learn these things called uh, marksmanship principles, which is the four type of elements of shooting, basically, and how to how to create a good shot, how to be a good shot. Um, and that's it, really. And it's yeah, I mean, it, it, that was a that, SLR was like a beast of a rifle. You know, it was a, a seven six two caliber, um, which very powerful gun. Um, and then later on, we changed to I think I, I got an SMG, a submachine gun, or something like that, which was my trade. A weapon, um, and I, I, I went to the because I went to the Gulf War when I was nineteen, and, and yeah, um, I've just seen that. We had that's the weapon I took. You know, shooting the first time, feeling that power. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, because you've never experienced anything like that, um, unless probably I don't know, say people were 
maybe brought up in South Africa or somewhere where weapons are prevalent in the home. The, the, there's not that here, is there? No. You, you know, so large, large calibre rifles are not prevalent here in homes. So, yeah, it was... I did have... I had a cousin who, who was in the army at the time. My uncle had been in the Royal Marines. My father had been in the RAF. Um, so all of them would have fired weapons, do you know what I mean? But obviously it's, it, it's not the same. Somebody explaining something to you and actually doing it are two different things. So. Of course. Yeah. But it, it was an exciting thing, not a, nothing to, to, to be frightened or worried about, you know. But you have got to be safe, obviously, because it's a very unforgiving thing. So Germany was all beer festivals, was it then? Before it, the action, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was what predominantly Oktoberfest with the tires. So yeah, there was all that kind of stuff, and it, it was there was a lot of drinking. There was a big drinking culture. Um, not much necessarily in the way of fitness or soldiering. It all seemed to be a that all seemed to be a backseat thing, and I just thought I, I could I could really do with something a bit. A bit better than this, you know. So, no disrespect to anybody. I just wanted more from my time. Um, the Gulf War came along. I volunteered. Uh, I was nineteen. Um, that was the Gulf War one with yeah, uh, Saddam Hussein. That's was it? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went out there. Where, um, where did you end up? We ended up. Uh, I ended up in a place in Saudi Arabia um, to start off with. That's where we mounted uh, mounted up and got in vehicles and, and went into the desert. Um, and then, really, at 19, obviously, I didn't have any rank or anything. You went to briefings, but you didn't really have a clue um, of where you were or, you know, people just showing you big maps of, of desert uh, of desert with sweeping arrows and saying, you're located here. It's all was, a bit... was the mission to liberate Kuwait, was that it? Yes, yeah. Um, but we we drove through... The road to Basra, we went up into uh, up from Saudi uh, into Kuwait, up round, skirted round into the bottom of Iraq, and then back down sort of the road to Basra. And we, for one, at one point, we lived in an we we camped, you know, set up base uh, in an area that had, where the Republican Guard had been, um, and that was quite interesting because by that time the war were coming to an end. Mm. Um, we were just really just hanging about in the desert type thing, tons of us. And so you could go around these these places where um, the Republican Guard had been, we were throwing grenades, firing mortars, doing, yeah. <laughs> doing all, all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. unregulated, you know, <laughs> and, and unchecked. And uh, yeah, that were all right, you know. Did you come across casualties? Uh, yeah, seeing casualties. Uh, seeing casualties for the first time, what, 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 like? what was that like? Um, I was just fed, like the road to Basra, there were lots of dead Iraqis. Was that? Mm. Yeah, there was, yeah. Just um, on the roadside? Uh, yeah, smouldering because... Smouldering? Yeah, because the, the A-10 tank busters had been there and basically done the damage and we were pushing through behind the A-10 tank busters, you know, the uh, yeah. the aircraft. The Amer so... Was it men, women, children? No, 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 Iraqi soldiers, men. Soldiers, just soldiers, yeah. okay. Um, you know, and you could collect weapons, you could... You couldn't bring them home, obviously, but but you could pick anything up and, you know. Does, I mean, that, you does that affect you, though, seeing people smouldering, corpses um, smouldering? I've heard there's a horrible I, smell. Yeah, I mean, you don't you don't forget the smell, but but as for the sights and that, I, I think, I, I think, probably touch, I, I think I've come away relatively unscathed, you know. Um, I've never, I've never had anybody... You know, say, oh, you you ought to consider speaking to somebody about this or speaking to somebody about that. So I, I think I'm relatively unscathed, you know. Um, 
so I, yeah, and I've, I've seen quite a bit um, and done quite a bit. So um, I, I think I'm just one of those who's been robust enough to to not buckle, I think. Just oh, got to get on with it, like being a doctor, isn't it? And yeah, I mean, I've got friends who, who've got PSD from, from one one re for one reason or another. Um, you know, I think it's just it affects people in different ways. And I think probably maybe the same as other things in life, There's a, you've got a tolerance, and, and once you get beyond that tolerance, that's when, you, that's when you, you need help. But maybe I haven't reached that yet, thank God, you know. I think so you're flushing yeah. out the Iraqis then, and was that quite an easy mission, that one? Because the tide had already turned. Yeah, I, th I think we, we'd been there since... We, I got there sort of 3rd of January. The war started on the 16th of January, 1991. Um uh, and really, th th there was, I, I, d I didn't get involved in any fighting then. Um, that had already been done by the time we got there, you know, and these tank busters had done the damage and, you know, but like I said, vehicles were still smouldering. Um, and you could you could go about these vehicles. Th there was no problem. I mean, at one time, I always remember, we were climbing in and out of tanks looking for, hey, you're looking for, I don't know, whatever. Um, and I come across, I come across a red, leather-bound book um, with a picture, a photograph of Saddam and loads of Arabic writing right to left, you know, they yeah. right from right to left. And I, at 19, you think, we just threw, I just threw it away. But looking back, I really should have kept it and had it translated because it was probably the tank commander's journal. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was just an <laughs> interesting... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, but but at 19, you you don't think like that. Mm. So it was just... it was, I think I was just very young... Very naive, um, but but obviously um, I, I was quickly coming out of the naivety thing because I was getting exposed to these types of things. Um, and once I'd come back, I was very much like, yeah. I mean, I volunteered. I knew that was that was the right thing to do. And I, and I thought I, to progress, you've got to be there. You can't sit here and when everybody else is there type thing. So I'd and I'd sort of you know they were they were they were relatively pleased with me these officers and that that I'd volunteered now that type of person showing some willing. So uh, how long were you out there for? Uh, I think it was about four or five months, something like that. Okay. Um, we came back and then you had four weeks leave and it would just carry on as normal. You know. <laughs> so, so what was the first fight in your experience? Um, the first fighting was probably um, in Bosnia, Bosnia. And, and by that time I'd had a lot of training, um, I, I'd been to Hereford, been in special forces, so I'd certainly got, I'd certainly got the knowledge of, of what to do when something happens, whether you, you come under effective enemy fire or you take casualties or whatever it is, I'd got that knowledge on and I was, I, I felt I was securing my mind on, on what to do. And um, So what went down in Bosnia? I... When when I left Hereford, I went to a mainstream Green Army unit, which was very um, sort of boring, really. Um, non, you know, there was there wasn't really much for me to do. Uh, there wasn't much for anybody anybody to do. And we'd done these, like we'd been out to the Falklands and done a rulement tour. You know, it's a complete waste of time, really. Um, I'd been to Bosnia for three months, but never really gone out of camp. Um, and that was just the nature of what what that unit was doing at the time. And then an officer come to me and said, look, have you seen this? And it was something on what's known as part one orders. So that's a regimental document that comes out every 
whatever weekly or whenever they need to put one out. And at the back, there was like a list of jobs that you could apply to do or whatever it was. And he showed me this thing and it was um, it was going to be a, um, a multinational unit uh, gathering intelligence on war criminals for the Hague Tribunal. So I said to him, well, what, what really do you know about it? And he says, well, I just know this, know that, and know the other. And we had this discussion. And he says, I think I think this is sort of your business, you know, right up your street, I think. So I sort of said, well, yeah, maybe so, you know, but what about this, what about that? Anyway, it, it came about that I did put my name down, I applied, and I went on a, what's known as a pre-select, which was four or five days down at Defence Intelligence Security Centre. Um, met with these officers, did a presentation, wrote an essay, um, yeah, had some interviews with a panel of people, um, psychometric testing and all kinds of stuff, weapon testing, um, and, they, and they liked what they saw. And I thought, yeah, and then they said, you know, could we call your officer and see see if you're available to come back on the, the full course? So I said, yeah, anyway, they spoke to um, this major of mine, uh, who I think was happy to get rid of me, really. So he says, yeah, he can, he can start straight away. So I went back on this course, um, and sort of every everything was a raving success. You know, they liked me, I liked them, I liked what the job was. And when I got out there, it was like undercover. And I was put in the American sector, uh, and we got CIA guys in the team, got American SF in the team, um, Danish SF in the team, um, Italian Italian special forces, all, all kinds of people living in this house, about eight of us, and uh, we went out and gathered intelligence. And then to set the table a bit more, what had actually happened out there for you to be out there? Was there some massacre? Or something? The, the, basically, there was war crimes. Um, there was um, sort of. Uh, the Serbs basically, or the large majority there, were killing Muslims, killing Christians, you know, and, and it was sectarian violence basically, war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, and all kinds of stuff. Right. So it was like NATO had said, well, we can't have this because NATO's like the world police, isn't it? Yeah. So they'd said, well, we can't have this, and they'd obviously mobilised and gone there. Now, in order to bring these war criminals to, to justice and get a hold of them, they wanted someone to gather that intelligence. So they put together this unit. And I just, I mean, I was on that course in England with uh, guys who went to the British sector. But it was just the way that the sort of the roll of the dice, I ended up in the American sector. So like, um, you know, my, my team commander at one point was a, an American major called Jack. who was a great guy, actually. And uh, yeah, that was it. And we, we lived in an house up in, up in the you know, up in the countryside. Um, we used to get uh, administrated out of a place called Comanche Base at Tuzla. Um, and, you know, we we were going out on these daily missions, uh, speaking to people, and you'd get what's known as something called PIRs, which is Primary, primary Information Requirements. And they'd come from the general. So it, at that time it was General Grange, an American general. Uh, and he'd say, "I need to know this." It just come th wouldn't come from him. It'd come from him di indirectly. Um, and he'd say, "I need to know this. Need to know that." You'd collect all this info. You'd go through the, your contacts who you had, who you were managing, and you'd say, "Well, I think mine can answer this question, that question, whatever it is." And then you'd make contact and you'd go speak to them and get these in a roundabout way. You'd you know because you had a cover story and you'd 
you'd sweet talk them and then uh, you'd offer things and all kinds of what stuff. What was your typical cover story? Uh, so the cover story was that um, because because things had gone wrong there, there was lack of housing, lack of shelter, lack of building materials. We were called the um, land centre planning staff and we'd come there to offer these building materials. And we had a legitimate phone number you could ring to get in touch with us and all this kind of stuff. And then we'd say, yeah, they need so much wood, so much polythene. You know, you see these makeshift shelters with the wooden polythene and we'd send all this kind of nonsense up there. <laughs> then we'd go up there saying, is everything all right with the wood? And this, and then we'd, we'd ask about other things. Um, and going back to your original question, um, but we, we were out there one day and we'd been told... Look, you know, things are not good. Um, there's fighting, there's all manner of stuff. Um, we went out there and uh, we were in a two-vehicle convoy and uh, I was in the second vehicle with a uh, CIA guy and we got T-boned and run off the road and we'd, he, the CIA guy was driving and we went through a perimeter wall, uh, straight like through a telegraph pylon and straight into someone's house. So drove straight through the side of someone's house. Yeah. So half the vehicle was in like the living room, and uh, was anyone in? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> There's just like bricks and mortar everywhere, and um, when <clears throat> so the, the the CIA guy had hurt, had hurt his leg and was screaming and revving the engine. I switched the engine off, got the weapons, and ran. Got out of the vehicle, and ran back towards about. 15, 20 Serbs who were running down the road armed, like not to help us out. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the, oh my um, goodness. So we've had we've had like a Mexican standoff, you know. Um and uh, the guy who I was with in the vehicles got rid of all the sensitive items, but the vehicle was disabled. We we couldn't get we couldn't get it out. But the vehicle was waiting for us and pro also providing defensive position. So we've cross-decked all into that, and I've pulled withdrawn fr from that defensive position. And then we've literally just hightailed it out of there. So you kept them at bay until you yeah, got... Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we've had a firefight, um, kept them at bay and, the, and then, like, fire and manoeuvred backwards because we're just grossly outnumbered, you know, and at that point, you've just, it's just, you've just got to get gone. That's the first time you've been fired on. Y yeah. How did yeah. that feel? Were you shitting yourself? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't... You sort of don't... Um, it, it's one of those things. It, it, it's a... It's, no different to being any other type of confrontation. There comes a point when f you don't realise you're scared, and you are scared, but you don't realise you are anymore. And it's fight or flight. Mm. And so the initial bit at that point was to to put down some fire and f and fight back. But obviously, you know, you're heavily outnumbered, and then it becomes like, listen, we are going after them. Tactical withdrawal, whatever you want to call it, um, run away. Um, so that's what we did. So it's like you're on autopilot. Yeah. But they're spreading out, are they, and trying to get to you? Yeah, yeah of so course. So you've got to figure out how to keep them yeah, back. Yeah. yeah. So I've got the Danish guy over my right-hand shoulder, sort of, but, but further back. And he's laying down fire. I'm laying down fire. I'm moving. He's laying down fire. I'm moving. And all this kind of stuff until I get back to them. And then we just drive off. Were they getting any closer? Um, no, because... no because They hunkered the, down? Yeah, because of the yeah. fire. So, but you know, a bullet travels fast and travels a long way. So, it, yeah, just it was just by by the grace of God, really, that nobody got nobody got injured or killed. Do you think when you um, retreated, they would just jump up and? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know whether the you know whether they run out of ammunition or whatever. Mm. I don't, I don't know. Um, but you see what. What happens in them situations is is that a lot of people say, "Oh, I was involved, involved in such an act of violence that I was physically sick." 
you're not physically sick at the time. It's after when you think about it. That's when that's when you think about feeling sick. Like when the what, adrenaline's run off. Yeah, what yeah. could have happened? Because mm. it all could have gone wrong. Were you thinking how long is your ammunition going to last in case these guys keep well, going? Well, I'd, 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 I'd had the training, you know, conserve ammunition, you know, specific rates of fire, um, deliberate rates of fire and so on and so forth. So I was I was conscious, you know, but I was firing foreign weapons at the time. I, it wasn't a British, I was firing Uzi and, and all, you know, that's and that was that belonged to a Dutch guy who was... <laughs> and it was just, it was... Because really, I'd, I'd gone out there, believe it or not, they sent me out there with just a pistol. That yeah, there was. I had no rifle. Oh my goodness! I'd much, so, I'd much rather have an Uzi. Yeah, <laughs> I used to have an Uzi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Had an Uzi in Arizona. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it's it's no good over massive distances, is it? You know, I mean, it's mm. it's only any good in this type room, yeah. really. But what about hand just, grenades, things like that? You didn't have access. I didn't to have like anything that. like that. That'd be handy. We didn't have anything like that. that. <laughs> and it was it was that was a thing where. Um, Back at the house, the the CIA guys had got thermite grenades um, for yeah, and that was but that there was those were purely for the laptops that we were doing the work on. So if the house got attacked, the the drill was to put all the laptops on on a pile, and put the thermite <laughs> grenade on top and melt through everything. <laughs> we got rocket launched and everything, but we didn't have them with us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They were they, because somebody had to two blokes had to stay in the house every day. Well, the rest went out, and you took it in turns. What happened to the CIA guy and his leg? Um, so he, we got back. We, the place where that happened was a place called Birchkur in uh, in Bosnia Herzegovina, and it's a Serb stronghold. And on one side there was a American base called Camp McGovern, and from our house we used to come through one side of Camp McGovern and go out the other side of Camp McGovern. So we hightailed it to Camp McGovern, got access. They, and they knew us, you know, we'd got the ID cards and everything to get in there. And obviously that's like, it's like a cleaning process then and a defence mechanism. And we've drove out of the other side. We've obviously then got straight on the communications and reported it to Tuzla and the, and the higher command. And they were like, we want you to come down here straight away. So me and the CIA guy and the others who were involved drove down there and told the tale. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then yeah, yeah, strange thing. And then I got um, it was like we're going to write. They, they were talking about we're going to write you up for this and write you up for that. And I, I think I got a general's letter, a letter from general at the time, general's commendation. Um, <laughs> but but actually, the CIA came came to me because he got an handler. He got a bloke who was managing him at Tuzla Base. And he said, Bill Clinton's going to fly in. Uh, not not for this, for, for <laughs> to meet the troops. And do you want to be on that and, and shake hands with Bill Clinton? I said, no. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I'd have done it now, you know what I mean? But, but at the time I was like, no, 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 it's not nah. for me. So, yeah, so that's what happened. And what was your next assignment after that? Um, so I, I'd come back from Bosnia, and then I think it's probably quite... Um, a sort of benign time where um, I was due to get promoted to sergeant. Um, things were going relatively well at that point. We got, you know, I was very young, um, and I think I was a sergeant around about 26, 27 years old. Um, and I think then they'd, they called me up. Um, I said they called me up. It was a, um, a staff sergeant called me up and said, I was at home at the time. We'd, you know, we'd got an house, uh, me and my son's mother. 
Um, and this is before my son was born. But um, we'd got an house uh, moral, near where I came from, originally come from. Um, they phoned up the house and said, there's a promotional course. You've, you've come off the promotion board to be a sergeant. Do you want to go straight on this course? Well, this was on like a Friday afternoon. I said, when's the course start? They said, Sunday. I said, wow. It's uh, <laughs> like, a, it's like a career make or break type thing. So, But anyway, I, I, as um, I, I, as is what I do, I said, yeah, go on then, put, put my name down. So they sent a signal uh, and said, yeah, he'll be there. So I was there on the Sunday. And uh, yeah, that's how I got through that bit. Um, come back as then a sergeant um, to the same unit. And then I was due to be posted so they were due to send me on my way somewhere else to do a job somewhere else, wherever that may be. And you fill out these things known as, uh, it's like an army form number, but it's called, a, behind the scenes, they call it a dream sheet because it's literally is a, just dreams. So you might fill in like, you know, you want Tenerife as the um, light entertainment manager or whatever. <laughs> um, but you won't get, you definitely won't get that. Um, so I think they'd, they'd offered me something like Northern Ireland as... Uh, military transport senior non-commissioned officer, something like that. Well, I, I knew the guy who was doing that job. I'd been in training with him, um, a guy called Andy. So I rung him up and said, you know, we hadn't talked, but obviously we'd been in training as young, young lads. So I said, look, you know, he's like, oh, don't bother, don't bother, it's rubbish. Um, <laughs> which I'd had a good idea it was anyway. But uh, so what happened was is then, when I was on that promotional course to be a sergeant, the guy who was in charge of that had said, would you be interested in coming back and being an instructor? And I thought, rather than me get something that I don't want, I'm better off taking something that I'm sort of in charge of, you know? So I rung him up and I said, look, do you remember when you said, he said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I'm saying, yeah. So he says, okay, what you've got to do now then is get your um, officer to, to write to us expressing your interest and we'll write back and say we accept that and we're, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's what happened. And I, I went there um, and I became a, a sergeant instructor um, on this promotional course um, for, for people who are, you know, going to be sergeants and wanting to remain sergeants, that type of thing. And, um, and I took these guys through um, this six-week course doing fitness tactics and so on and so forth. And I'd have like anywhere between 12 and 15 guys to myself and somebody else. There'd be other guys like me doing the same with us and all run on a, the same curriculum. And um, I think we'd, I did about three or four courses. I lasted about a year. Uh, it weren't really for me, to be honest with you. Mm. And there was a situation towards the back end where I uh, failed someone and... The training officer came and said to me, look, you know, you've written this, you've written that on this report. His commanding officer will see that. I said, and, and so he should. You know, it's Yeah, his performance was poor, you know. Mm -hmm. And what he said to me was, is, um, so I, I give a demonstration of how to clear a wood of the enemy. Um, and then I, what you do is you take them round. You give a demonstration, explain it, demonstrate it. They imitate and practice and so on and so forth. How do you clear the wood of an enemy? <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, you, you, get, you, get, you, you put out uh, what's known as like cut-offs. So outside the wood, you would put off a cut-off at the far end, a cut-off at this end. What's a cut-off? Uh, with a machine gun. And they would look down the... Not, not the, they would look down the wood line and wait for anybody to exit. 
the enemy to exit, to run away from the wood. You would line up in extended line and you'd advance through that wood and flush them out essentially. Yes. Or you might come across them and have a firefight with them. And that's so that's what essentially happens. I did all that, showed them. Uh, and then what you do is you do that in the morning. You take them somewhere else to do something else. Then you bring them back and then you test one of them on on that. That's his that's his, his exam type thing. Um, anyway, he did it all wrong. And I said, you do know where we are, don't you? So he's like, yeah. I said, show me on the map. So he you know, picks up a blade of grass and points with the, the, the shows me right there. I said, have you been here before? He said, yeah, I was here this morning with you. I said, good. I said, so why didn't you just do it like I did it? <laughs> he said, oh, when it comes to tactics, I'm a fool. I said, all oh, right. I said, well, you know. You in the wrong Yeah, I said, watch. <laughs> you know, because essentially, you see, if, you, if, you, if I pass people through me to go back to that unit, I'm saying, listen, you're good enough to take a 17, 18, 19-year-old like I was out to somewhere, you know, and look after them. Well... What if you don't and somebody goes, something goes wrong and, you know... I mean, do, inevitably things do go wrong, obviously, but, you know, to knowingly pass somebody through you who's not good enough to take somebody's child out to... So I felt a bit aggrieved with that kind of response. And, and, I, and I wrote, you know, the last sort of two lines I wrote by his own admission, this man is a fool. And uh, <laughs> anyway, the training officer said to me, Look, you know, you really can't write that. I said, but, <laughs> I said, but, but he said it, you know, I just wrote it. That's, oh, I'm not making it up. Um, and I, I sort of realised then that this perhaps not the place for me, you know, type thing. And it weren't long after that, I think uh, a friend of mine from Her ex Hereford lad um, had phoned up the house, spoke to my partner and said, you know, is Neil available, all this. And she knew these names, they, they, were, they were familiar in the household, these names who had, Mates, we we're working in Algeria. Uh, why don't you come to to Algeria and work with us? So I went. That was on a Friday. I went back to the army on the Monday, um, and I went to see the the admin officer, and I said um, I'd like to PVR, which is like payment with voluntary payment for voluntary release or something like that. So he's like, oh. Um, let me have a look. How old are you? When's your date of birth? When's your promotion date? How senior are you? He said, oh, look, look what's happened here. You On Friday, it came out that you're now protected. You can't do that. So I was like, Friday? I said, I, I came here on Friday. Where were you? He said, oh, I was playing regimental cricket. I said, well, you'll have to backdate it then. So, <laughs> so which was a lie, but, it, but he, so he backdated it and I, ju I jumped in and they asked for 250 quid. I paid it on the Monday and I left on the Thursday night and that was the end of it. And I'd done four days short, 12 years. Wow. So, <laughs> so it was as quick as that, you know, mm. and, uh, and, but prior to that, I was like a career man, you know, I was mm. going to go all the way and all this and I'd had very positive feedback and, you know, you can be a major and all this kind of stuff. And I did fancy that, but I was, I was going disillusioned and I thought the best thing is, is that um, if that's the way you feel is, is get out of it. And that's what I did, you know. So what was going down in Algeria? Uh, mates of mine were doing security and risk consultancy work on uh, desert oil rigs. Um, and the company was Halliburton um, and Slumberger and all these type of oil, petrochemical type of people, companies. They were attack from people, bandits and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, there is a threat out in the, uh, mm. out in the desert, you know, because you're just miles away from anywhere. So, mm. And I think, I think what 
what happens is, or what I know to happen is, is that they go to the insurance company, the underwriters, and say, look, we've got ex-Special Forces guys doing our security risk stuff, this, that, and the other. And the premium gets reduced. They don't actually see the benefits of the reduction, but what they do get is an asset, which is you giving 24-7 advice. Mm. That's how it, so, you know, it, pay, it pays to have it, really. And it satisfies a lot of, uh, of boxes, ticks in boxes. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Harry's. Having such a scratchy face, I'm always delighted to get a new Harry's set. There's a foaming gel, hydrating night lotion, and the razor with the weighted handle really gets the job done. The trimmer blade makes it so easy to get into those tricky places to reach. The shave gel offers effective lubrication and just comes off like butter. It's such a smooth shave. It shaves fast, efficiently, no discomfort, and it is so smooth by the end. The hydrating night lotion is light and non-greasy. Harry's is doing a zero pounds trial. Start shaving with the products, just pay for delivery. Save every time. Save on all your shaving products without sacrificing quality. You're in control. You can modify or cancel your plan from the account page. Make sure to support our podcast and start your own skincare journey by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, and have your trial set delivered to your door. That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. How long were you out there for? uh, I think I did five months in the first stint. Um, but they never struck oil, so <laughs> so that came that came to an end. But by that time, that was all right because I had the money out of it. You see, so um, and I was well on my way. Um, so yeah, I felt as I swum the channel there, you know. And then I then came back from there. Um, I clicked up with Alan Sugar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was the original apprentice, actually. Yeah, yeah. I came back from there, and I couldn't. I'll tell you what happened is there would, there'd been a move. Uh, by by these friends of mine who'd been doing this security and risk consulting, communications and all kinds of stuff in the desert. They'd then gone on to do Microsoft uh, systems certified engineer jobs, uh, which you could pay for, because obviously they'd got the money now, you know, so they were paying for these big qualifications um, and getting these jobs at, you know, sort of whatever it was a day, big, big money compared to being in the army. So obviously I was like a little bit behind them in all this, uh, but following on. So they was like, oh, you've got to go to Coventry and you've got to go to see this company called wherever it was. Um, and you sort of do this residential course. You, you, it costs about 7,000 quid and you get this qualification and then you can get this job doing this, that, the other. Well, that was true. I, I went there and did the seven-week thing. and did How the- techy are you? Not at all. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no. My son, my son's good. Yeah. So, like, if I wanted anything doing, I'd just, I'd just <laughs> ask him. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, but yeah. So I, I did that, and then, and then I, I worked for a company called Viglan as a software engineer, and it was doing antivirus stuff. And Viglan was owned by Alan Sugar. So I always, I always joke with I was the first apprentice. They said, "What really were you? Oh yeah." So, <laughs> so <laughs> next up is Luxembourg. Hey. Yeah, Luxembourg um, was a job where a friend of mine, ex-military guy, a friend of mine, he was actually my my sergeant in basic training, um, and I've become friends with him. He's a great guy. 
and uh, he was out in Luxembourg working with these lads and uh, from down south and uh, they were out there doing all manner of stuff left right and centre you know um, some of it I'm, I'm sure was uh, was less than uh, less than whatever but uh, anyway they rung up saying we'd like someone to come and streamline the sort of the long distance stuff because they were doing stuff in vehicles long distance cashing transit and so on and so forth would that be your they said to me would that be your type of thing i said um it would but now obviously on in this phone call i was aware that there were certain things being held back <laughs> because because, of the phone, because it was over the phone so i said look would you would you do me a favor would you let me come out there would you let me look at the job and make a decision in three to four days time so they were like yeah no problem come out we're gonna pay you this much pay you that much and to be honest with you they were complete gentlemen and they stuck to the word and there was no fun and games whatsoever and i stayed for four months and they paid me and it was it, it was probably one of the one of the best jobs i've ever had and they were great guys and i'm still in touch with still in touch with them today yeah. you know what i mean it was fantastic yeah um but as all, as with all good things it comes to an end and then you leave and go to afghanistan yes wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so i'd come i'd come back from Luxembourg, and um, I'd, had, I'd, had, I'd done financially, I'd done quite well out of that. Um, but obviously, it's, it's the same with everything. You just, there's no time to sort of sit back and, you know, there might have been a week in Tenerife here or there or whatever it was um, on holiday. But generally, it was, what, what am I going to do now? Afghanistan had started. Um, people were ringing and saying, do you fancy it? This, that, the other. And, and I said, yeah. And I went to London, I went to Stratton Street in Mayfair, um, went to some offices there above Langham's Brasserie, um, had an interview with some, some ex-army officer. And it was like, when do you think you can go? And I said, I'm, I'm good to go today. I've got, I've got the bag, everything with me. They gave me this navy blue Gore-Tex jacket and me, me and two other lads, navy blue Gore-Tex coat apiece. And they said, here's the tickets, get your sends off to Heathrow. And so we, we went out there via Baku in Azerbaijan. Uh, and that was around about the time when uh, England, I remember watching England win the World Cup there, 2003, that was 2003, probably late on in 2003. Did about 10, 11 weeks, the first stint. Um, so I was trying to think then, did they win the World Cup that year? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they did, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was Wilkinson doing the no. is it Wilkinson doing the kicking? Uh, you remember he kicked the he, he did the kick and uh, and that secured the win. I think it was and God, yeah. That yeah, 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 wow, yeah. So and that was there to do the security for the lawyer Jurger, which was the writing of the constitution with Karzai. Uh, and all that. Kind of, so, so I seen Karzai, I seen General Dostum, all these big hitters, you know, 500 uh, delegates come to this place. Uh, and, and I'd seen them day in, day out. You know, I'd seen, I met Karzai, I met Dostum, uh, and, and tons of others, you know. Um, and then that sort, of, that sort of right into the... It, there was an interesting part there as well when they were writing the Constitution. I don't know if you if you remember it, and it was it was televised uh, quite widely uh, internationally. A woman called Malali Joya, um, an Afghan woman, um, stood up and was very very outspoken against um, certain members of the delegation, um, calling them bandits, thieves, and all, all manner of stuff. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, 
that that is not the done thing in that in in that country. Nepaline. Yeah, women don't stand up and say them things, and they're mm. not outspoken. They're seen but not heard, <laughs> and very rarely seen actually. You know, mm. so she was she was under death threats uh, immediately, and. They gave me the job of being her bodyguard for the next 72 hours. <laughs> so, and so, how on earth did that go down? Yeah, so as always, mm. I was like, yeah, all right, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do. And um, anyway, she stayed on the lawyer jerk side for the next 72 hours. And then it was, I'm pretty certain there was somebody big hitting from America there, pulling the strings. I never met them, I never knew them, I never knew who they were, but there was definitely somebody dictating the pace of the lawyer Jurga with Karzai and y you know what I mean? Tell mm. Telling him what to do, how to do it, what and, and how things would go and, and what, you know, and, and sort of giving direction in the background, dictating the pace. And um, Like the CIA? I would expect so, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And obviously I'd, I'd witnessed that firsthand before. So that's why I say that now is that there was definitely somebody doing that. Mm. Um, I never met them, but I used to deal with the... Um, a black guy who was definitely coming with information from well above his position. And I suspect it was somebody from the CIA, to, you know, saying this is what's going to happen because we're paying, that type of thing. And then it was said, can you get <coughs> Malala Joya ready um, and get her out here at sort of 10 o'clock at night and this, that and the other. Um, we got her ready and she was whisked away and took, you know, up, up to the airfield, taken, taken away in a helicopter. And the next thing I knew is she were in America. Hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, green card and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and all that kind of stuff. So that's, wow. and yeah, yeah. But she was a really nice person. You know, I, I, I chats with her and all kinds of stuff. And she says, you know, I knew I was destined for this. And, uh, yeah, she's a really good person, you know. And uh, But she, she stood up and, I mean, to talk about fearless, you know. Mm. How much of a threat? Would you say out of one to ten, was she? Was she under? Yeah, probably nine. Yeah, really? ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. You, things like that. You, you, you. In them places, you can go missing. No, no two ways about it. Nobody, nobody bats an eyelid. You know. Um, yeah. So, and yeah, you're just dealing with. I mean, for example, I'm not saying I'm not saying Dustin would. General Dustin would have done it, but. He he had an he had his own army, his own tanks in Mazari Sharif. He it was his his fiefdom, you know. That's what it was. He's widely regarded as the the man who did the heroin out of Afghanistan, you know, a million pound a week and all this kind of stuff, as I understand it, you know. So yeah, if he if, if he <laughs> if he was to say, give the word, I'm I'm sure it would be done. You know. What happened at the voter registration project in Jalalabad? <laughs> Um, voter registration. That was so. That was the project after where this was now. Karzai's here, and we're gonna have this vote to make sure he stays. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what that was about. And, uh, <laughs> no puppet government there, folks. <laughs> so they'd sent me up to um, Jalalabad, which is on the border with, or roughly on the border with um, Pakistan. Um, and the border crossing there is called Torkham, Torkham border. Um, Jalalabad is where Bin Laden's family had lived, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we went up there and, it, you know, we were 
really starting to instigate this, there's going to be this here, that here, voter registration, this and monitor and all this kind of stuff um, and give ground truth, you know, and feed it back. And um, the first thing is we went to the, the, we were invited to the Pakistan sort of consulate building in Jalalabad where the guy says, the Pakistan official says, to, you know, if you've, if you've got the dollars, you can have the Pakistan passport. So we were buying Pakistan passports because obviously we, we were that far away from Kabul that it, going across the token border, if anything went wrong, became became a viable option for us for running, mm. you know, for, for, for escaping evasion and running away. Um, so that's that's what happened there. So we, we went there. Um, we did that. I mean, there were rocket attacks and everything on the night time. It was it were what? horrendous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's the Taliban firing rockets. Yeah. Um, you know, on the night time. What um, you just see them in the sky? No, no. They were land. They were landing, and uh, you, you could hear the explosions. Neil's like you know, not so, casual, isn't he? Yeah, it's um, rockets. <laughs> rockets. <laughs> yeah, it was just so. They were landing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As rockets do. Yeah, and, and I just I thought it sounds like fireworks. <laughs> I mean, they're a bit bigger than fireworks, but <laughs> yeah. It, they kill people. So it was like, <laughs> we lived in this guest house and um, actually we, we'd, been, we'd been put together with this, with this driver, right? And one of the things is we had to go and get um, like a, a J.R. Hartley fishing type jacket that they all wear over the shawar kameez thing, you know, the long shirt. They all wear these, all the Afghans do, and they wear this hat with a rim right called Pakul. And all this kind of stuff. So we were down the market buying all this type of stuff, trying to fit in. And um, I've turned around because there's somebody following us, right? And uh, I'm like, what, what on earth do you want type thing? And I got quite aggressive with this fella, you know, saying like, you know, if you don't, if you don't get yourself off, like, you know, I'll snap you in half type thing. <laughs> so then this guy I was with called Andy says, well, what's the matter? So I says, I says, this guy following us around. You know, all the time he says, he, 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 of course, he's the driver. Right? <laughs> but all I'd seen is the back of his head. So, I, so I'd, never, I'd never seen his face. So I, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, what on earth this following us around all the time? You know, and uh, anyway. But um, yeah, so I did about eight weeks there and I thought, this is, this is not for me. Uh, we'd moved accommodation a couple of times. Some lads had come to join us and they'd been farmed out to the uh, different areas. Um, and then when I left, um, two of those lads... They, they got shot, you know, by the Taliban wow. uh, and killed. And uh, what were the circumstances? I think they'd been they'd been um, up by the border. They'd been living there, you know, and everything was sort of all right. And I think they'd gone to have a meeting with it, like supposedly like a tribal elder or whatever, um, and get ground truth on what the situation was. And as they come as they come back on foot through the woods. They got shot in the back by Taliban, oh. wow. and uh, that's as I understand it, you know. And uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I was just glad to be out of it. You know, there were all manner of stuff going on there where they were saying we don't want you to have weapons. <laughs> well done. Well, yeah. It, well, it, you know, my policy was up there was I'd, we'd got this float um, of cash. And we hired weapons and wrote down on the receipts through it for something else, you know, for food and all kinds of stuff and bottled water. Um, but but ultimately I hired weapons because it, it's one thing getting caught out and not having a weapon. You, you know, if you've got one, at least you've got the you've got the choice of whether you use it or not. Mm. Um, 
and so I, I, I'd left by then, so I didn't really know the ins and outs of it. And, I, I, you know, the people I tried to talk to were very tight-lipped about it, you Gosh. know. I had a relative out there. They got surrounded by the Taliban, and they called in the air support. And it's when they, the enemy's so close to the friendly. It's Danger called, close. It's called a bug squash, a bug crush or something, the bombing. Bug crush. It's that, And anyway, they all had to hunker down while they wiped the... The bombs came down, and it was yeah. it was really close to them getting squashed as well. Yeah, yeah. Bug squasher, bug crusher. I can't remember what he said. It was called. yeah, danger close. Yeah, danger close. It, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. 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 So that's yeah, that that was it really. I just uh, I, to be honest with you, when they started with the weapons thing, and don't you, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other. I really thought that's that's it for me. You know, it's time to move on. Do you know what I mean? Really so, followed taking the piss though. Well. It, it's great for somebody sat in Kabul yeah. to tell you, you know, hundreds of miles away, you can't do this out in the out in the countryside. You can't do that. But, well, yeah, but you're sat there safe, aren't you? You know, it's it's us who are up here, not so safe. Might as well put some glow sticks on and just run yeah, around. Yeah, in the yeah. Open. yeah. So <laughs> I was a bit yeah. So I thought that that was that was then the time for me to move on, and that's what happened. Was I resigned? Um, I didn't fall out with anybody, but I did resign, and I I got I got. I think I can't remember. I got an aeroplane, uh, you know, like a small aircraft, fixed wing aircraft back, uh, like a six seat, I think, UN type plane. Um, back to Kabul, got picked up. Uh, I think I spent one night in the villa uh, in the centre of Kabul with the rest of the lads who were down there. Uh, and the following day, I was flown out. And, well, this is um, interesting that you ended up as a um, Baghdad as a security and risk consultant for Reuters. Because wasn't it the Assange video that Reuters journalists got? Friendly fire. No, they got assassinated, didn't they, by the helicopters? Uh, yeah. 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 Collateral, what's it called? Collateral murder, collateral damage. That, I'll tell you what that was. That was the guy. It wasn't by the... Or the if it's the wasn't right, it the Americans that were controlling it from... They fired from a tank, didn't they? The, um, he, he, he spun round with a camera on his shoulder and pointed it at a tank, and the guy mm, thought it was a rocket launcher mm, and opened up fire. But he was a local national, not... Sort of a, uh, but he was working for Reuters. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. remember his name now, but um, but I did I did go there for round about five. I think it was five weeks, mm. and then the same the guy who had those contracts providing who was providing uh, security personnel. I went from Reuters. I went to uh, NBC News, which was in a different mm. part of Baghdad, and I lived in a hotel called the Alhambra. Um, we another four or five lads who were doing the same as me. Um, that's what happened there. Mm. So I didn't I didn't stay at Reuters for particularly long. Um, it well, was just it was just really I think probably the, the guy who run the company it was his way of getting me into the system. Mm. Um, and then I went down to CNN. I think I did about twelve months with CNN. And uh, what did you there. do for NBC News? So NBC News uh, and very, very much the same as any other media organisation. <clears throat> They're looking to obviously gather gather the news in a timely manner and get it out there in whatever format, whether it be um, TV or uh, newspaper or whatever, you know, um, war photography, things like that. So uh, they would go on the ground um, and they would meet people, they would have fixes, they would organise interviews and um, all manner of stuff, you know. And so you, and you would go with them. Uh, and and basically t tell them what the safest practice was 
on the ground, movement about here from A, from A to B, timings, body armour. So the people over, sort of the journalists over in Ukraine at the moment, yes. they have security? Yes. And right. I've actually, during this last couple of weeks, I've been offered a position in uh, Ukraine with Fox News. Oh, wow. Um, it's through a third party. It's not from from Fox directly, but, but yeah, I've been offered that, you know. But um, the just the, the the money's not there anymore, you know. Mm. So it doesn't because if you, you know the there is the risk reward thing of always. So it, the reward wasn't there for the risk. You see, um, I have actually been to Russia a couple of times, and probably uh, I've been to down towards the Crimea. I did a report in 2017 for a company that were going to fly. You know, when the Crimea got annexed, mm. I went in 2017 for um, a, com a British company that were going to fly drones um, for the UN and they were going to monitor the demilitarised zone. And I went I, I went to Kiev, got on the train and went all the way down there to Donetsk or Blast, it was called. And I stayed there for about three or four days and wrote this report on whether it was safe or not. I mean, ultimately it wasn't, but um, <laughs> as you can imagine, as you know now, but, but that's what they wanted to do is fly these drones, you know, um, from this airfield that was close to the, the demilitarised zone. But in that demilitarised zone, there were Russian special forces and all manner of thing, people cutting about in the middle of the night. So, Where is Janusian? And it sounds like it was pretty harrowing. Um, yeah. Janu Janusian was. So w once I left... Um, NBC News um, it was coming to an end there was a lot of infighting and so on and so forth and I went home and it was like you never got the call to come back type thing you know and then I think whoever had that contract a guy called Paul he lost it and he went to someone else um, I went to Sabre um, which was predominantly all XSF at the time like Special Forces guys um, after Sabre I went to Janusian and um, yeah, <laughs> that was. I was there about. I think I was. I think the first rotation was for six weeks. I ended up doing seven, but I knew straight away this is like it is. It, it, it was too fast and loose. You know, they were they were they were targeted all the time. Um, you, you sort of there were things get letters getting thrown of over the the perimeter wall because we had we had two villas. And, um, you know, those letters were from Al-Qaeda saying, we know where you are, we know who you are, all this kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, we, one Sunday we'd been out and uh, it was like, yeah, you've got to come back straight away, come back now. So we, we come back and there was um, a vehicle shot to pieces in the, in, the, in the car park in the front of the villa with the tarpaulin over it and two dead bodies in it. You know, and they, and they stayed there. They stayed there for two or three days. Like, and I was just like, "This is so bad for morale." Do you know what I mean? Because if people see that and think that's how you that's how you get treated when when, when something bad's happened, um, so I really I got um, yeah. There was, there was all manner of all manner of nonsense there. To be honest with you, there were good. There were some good lads, and the, and the problem wasn't with the good lads; it was with the management. And uh, and I just thought, you know, this is for me. So I, I agreed to stay an extra week, um, and I did do. I got to the airport and I had my resignation already saved in an email and literally connect, yeah, connected to the internet and fired it straight off. Um, and then I, from there, I went to CNN mm. with friends and friends of mine who were already there. Um, 
And that, that was a good job, you know, um, when it went to the Saddam trial with, with some journalists or Saddam, you know, there the night when he... Or he, wasn't, re he refused I, to wear a hood, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't, obviously I wasn't there when he got hanged, but I was I was in Baghdad at the time and somebody showed me the video straight away. What were the locals you know, like about it? Um, yeah, yeah, some were pleased, but, but, but remember when, when Saddam was, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, he, he, he wielded the big stick. But they knew where they stood. They really did, you know. And um, yeah, he was a nuisance to the to the Western world, which is probably why he had to go. You know, he wouldn't toe the line. But there were no Al Qaeda in uh, in 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 Iraq when when Saddam were there. There were no, you know, a lot of people say what a good place. You know, who am I to judge? You know, so yeah. I mean, there are a lot of nightmare stories. I used to, I used to. There was a guy who worked for CNN called Hamid, and he'd been in Saddam's secret police. So I was talking to him one day, and I said, you know, did you ever, did you ever meet Saddam? He said, I met him twice, met him twice. I says, oh, really? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, the first time I'd got a call, um, we want you on a checkpoint in the north of Baghdad on this main road, and you and your team and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he said, look out for this car, look out for this person and all this kind of stuff. He says, well, that car never came and I never saw that person at the checkpoint, you know, otherwise we would have stopped him and apprehended him for whatever and this, that and the other. He says, when I got home that night, they told me, a car will come. You have to go to Believer's Palace, which is the palace where Saddam ran the Ba'ath Party from and the political party and that's where he did his business. So he, he says, you take off all your watch and you leave everything valuable at home because you might not come back. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you say goodbye to everybody and you get in the car and off you go. He says, and when I got there, everybody else were there who was in my team, you know, another five guys. He said, and we stood in the four, the forecourt of Believer's Palace and Saddam come out and he ranted and raved and slapped everybody around the face. Then oh. they were put on the knees, um, hooded, you know, with hoods on and this, that, and the other. And then after about an hour, they were took the hoods off and said, right, get your hands off home type of thing. He says, and then the next time, it was the same situation, a car will come, come back. And they went through the same rigmarole and he gave them all $1,000. What? <laughs> so, so, you know, madness. Just <laughs> And that's what he told me, and he'd been in the secret place like so. Jesus. You know, and I got, I mean, to be fair, I got no reason to disbelieve him. You know, he was very, no. very genuine about it all. And he said, you meet in Sudan, is Yeah. So. so you go from that to world famous football players. Yeah. Um, so there was an ex Hereford lad who was doing the security at Manchester United. Um, and I met someone else there who I didn't, I, I, he'd not been at Hereford, but he but he'd had a very successful bodyguard, ex military guy. Sorry, how. Do football players need that much security? Need SAS guys? <laughs> I think how much keep danger? The women, keep the women off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think no. I think I think some of it's the the, the kudos factor. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like check out my, you know, it's a bit like my car thing. You know, my, my, we've gone from Saddam Hussein to yeah. these like <laughs> Premiership multi-millionaire football Free players. Yeah. So so one of so one of the guys who was a director of Sabre also. That was his, he was a, a major shareholder in the, the security at Manchester United. And so that's how I ended up there. 
and I knew him from Hereford as well. So that's 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 the connection. And then they'd phoned up and said, and at that time it was, you know, this SIA thing, the Security Industry Authority, they were coming into force. And even though you were qualified as a bodyguard, it was a bit like, well, where did you get qualified? How did you get qualified? Who passed you? And so you had to go do this refresher. So he was running these kind of uh, qualifications that were that were regulated. And I went there and said, look, could you help me out? Could you do this? Yes, yes, no problem. And uh, so I got, that's how I got the license, um, even though I was already qualified type thing. Um, and it's basically just check, do, do, do you know this much, that much, the other much? What were they like? Um, oh, he's a good guy, yeah. Oh, the footballers, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they, they, they were all right, you know, I Can mean. You name I, them? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had a, my on. my my son was about one at the time. And I got a nephew of the same age, and um, I got shirts from Ronaldo. It was a, yeah, so the first time round, like so. Um, also, go on, it, we did the at the same time we did the pre World Cup warm up games for England. So I got shirts off Beckham. I was asking for two all the time. Do you know what I mean? One for my son, one for my nephew. Um, John O'Shea was one, which, uh, yeah, I think I got three or four shirts at the, you know, so some of them were all right. Some of them were funny, you know. Um, yeah, 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 you know, like, and I was, I remember one night, I can't, I can't remember what it was. I think it was England that played, uh, might have been Hungary or something like in this pre World Cup warm up thing. And I remember you used to have to go to the end of the, the tunnel, but not the pitch side, the other side where they're going to the car park. Um, and apparently part of the part of their contract is that you go sign these signed autographs and things for, for fans and that, you know, it's so somebody like Beckham, um, extremely professional and diligent, you know, I did 45 minutes with fans and that, you know, and it, he's a very affable fellow to be fair, from what mm. I remember, um, really the same. But you then you'd get others who, They'd like walk. They'd walk past the the disabled kids and that. And I, oh, I can, oh dearie mm. me, I, I can't abide by that. I mean, people who've got literally zero to live for, you know. And and they're moving the wheelchair w w with a mouth and that. I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see that. I thought that was so poor, you know. And uh, yeah, you know, there were plenty of officials taking balls and shirts just got off to and their head. Yeah, yeah, and certainly there were certain there were certain ones that did it and certain ones that didn't. And I just thought that's poor. You know, that's really poor. But, you know, each to their own, you know, because I suppose at the end of the day, you've, when you put your head on your pillow, you've you've got to live with yourself, you know. Yeah. So. Then it's over to Ozzy Osbourne's family. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I'd got um, a mate of mine, uh, an ex-commando lad, had, had, um, I think he'd been in Japan with um, Kelly Osborne. She went to like be a geisha girl or something like live like a whatever it was for five weeks and get all done up like this geisha. Um, and I think he'd had enough to be fair. <laughs> and so when the when the media, I think it was called Scottish Media Group, they'd phoned him up and said, Look, um, Jack Osborne is gonna do this Mongol rally thing from Hyde Park in London by vehicle all the way to Ulaanbaatar in the, the capital of Mongolia. Are you up for it? He said, no, I'm not available, but I know the man who is. <laughs> so I guess this phone call, you're going to get a phone call from this this guy. And anyway, I thought they, they phoned up and uh, I went down there. They were nice people. Got introduced to Jack. And uh, When you it, heard about it, were you like, yes, this is the best job of my no, life? No, not really. No, I, no, I, I, no I, I've, I've never been, 
I've never been like that. You know, I've I've always I've always been very um like, yeah, it's all right. That type I've never do you know, even Man United, I mean when I got to Man United, they said to me, Do you wanna do, do you wanna tour around, you know, just us like, you know, around this, that, and the other. I went, No, you're all right. <laughs> and they were like, You're the first person to ever to ever turn us down for a I was like, No. I mean, I looked after the Glazers there as well. Um Edward and Sherry Glazer were the, the youngest son of um of the owner. Uh, Mal I think it's Malcolm Glazer, and uh, you know I used to sit behind Jack Charlton in the in the thing, but I was never ever that... never starstruck. No, no, and I used to talk to Wolf McGuinness, who was one of after Sir Matt Busby, I think was the all that type of stuff. Nice fellas, you know, but I was never, I was never. Uh, I mean, I remember one square way, Edward Glazer that opened up the shop, the store, the soup, the mega store, whatever it's called, Manchester United, just for him and his wife, and he was like, if you want anything, just put it in with mine. I was like, no, you're all right. What, what if the tour so, guide had have been Bill Clinton? <laughs> I'd already turned Bill down, so he, he probably wouldn't have given me a second chance. But um, from private security, well, we, we'll go through what you did with Jack Osborne first. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. go on. Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, they, 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 they were going to make a two-part series about um, this trip to Mongolia, um, and he got some of his friends. Some of his cronies, you know, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so we went to is it Welders where his mum and dad have a place in? Um, I don't know, and he's in their big house. Or yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so uh, it's it's a I can't remember the name. The dog was like shit. Chalfont Saint Peter, Chalfont like... Saint Peter is somewhere like in Berkshire. Have you been there? Yes. Were there loads of dogs? No, because they weren't they weren't sort of in residence at the oh. time. I think they were in America, but. But Jack had been staying there, so that's where we went to to meet him. And then he came to, into London, and there was like we went for an Indian and all this kind of stuff. And there was a bit of a pre-rally party or whatever that we attended, and it introduced me to some of his pals and that. And uh, you know, uh, no, there was a, a girl there called um, I can't remember her name now. But but anyway, her father was the sort of CEO of. Um, NBC News, mm. yeah, and he, you know, he was quite a powerful fellow, like you know. Um, that was it, really. It was it, we went, we we. It took about seven weeks to get there. It was a, it was a great trip, you know. Um, I've watched the Genghis Khan movies. What's Mongolia like these <laughs> days? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, well, it, yeah, it would. It was some of it was because we did it in the summer, so we had really good weather all the way through, oh, nice. and. Um, we drove this like expedition prepared. We, we were in support vehicles, so we drove this expedition prepared Mitsubishi Warrior type thing. They had one thousand cc cars or less. That was part of the the, the race rules or the rally rules, and uh, it was just a great thing. I met I met some good people, you know, and uh, some interesting fellas who, like, one had driven a taxi, like this black cab, and had the meter going and all that kind of stuff. There. How much um, was the fare at the end? I, I can't remember. <laughs> it was something extortionate, you know, like I don't know, seventy odd grand or something like that, whatever it was. So, but it was just a it was just a fun thing, and. Uh, but back, but come back by the end of it, I really had had enough of them. Do you, do you know, because you know? it, it was almost like you'd, you'd got to hold their hand all the time, and uh, I think Jack had had enough towards the end. You know, he, he didn't really want to get involved in stuff, and uh, so like we crossed this river one early one morning, and it had been quite high the the water. 
but I'd been talking to people because this was a regular thing for these locals. And they was like, oh, if you wait, it dies down. So I was like, all oh, right, okay. So we waited and we got across, but they were struggling for footage, uh, uh, for, for Jack, you know. So anyway, coming behind us was a like a Russian minibus, military minibus, um, but full of women and children, and it got stuck. Well, we'd got this kinetic tow rope, so I was, I was like, oh, you know, why do we get the kinetic tow rope out and we'll, we'll wear it out and we'll fasten it up and pull. So they were saying to, trying to get Jack to, to, to buy into this. And he was like, well, I'll do it if, if Neil joins in. And I said, yeah, come on then, I, you know, but it's not a TV programme about Neil, you know, it's, that's what it's not. Um, but in the end, he, he said the water were too cold, and I was left there, sort of in my underpants, up to up to no. yeah, yeah, and I was just like, dearie oh me, God. do you know what I mean? So anyway, we pulled them out, and there was tons of applause and all this, but obviously he didn't get involved, so that was never ever used. So he missed an opportunity to to show Does himself he look like in a, a good guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah and How he, was Jack with the food out there? Um, he he did as well as everybody else. What, what was it you were eating? Um, well, well, we tried everything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, sort of, um, was it goat's stomach curry and all this Ooh. kind of stuff? No, I mean, we, we went to a yurt. You know, the the, the sort of round tent with a yeah. yak hair and all that kind of stuff, and uh, they'd got this cauldron of fat bubbling away, and they were spooning it out. And I mean, I your worst oh dearie me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you know, you just got to have a sip. You, you don't, you don't eat so you it all because they just fill it up. So you just take a sip and say, that's great, and just leave it to one side, you know. So. Was it all right? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, most definitely not. No insects um, on the menu? No, I didn't see that. I'll I tell you the most interesting bit was everybody had got a golden eagle. Everybody. What? Yeah, everybody had got a golden <laughs> eagle. So you'd come across these people that just got like a juvenile golden eagle on their forearm. And I was just like, he's got a golden eagle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You can probably only see them um, in the islands of Scotland here. Um, and there's probably, I don't know, maybe 10 mating pairs, say, or something like that, I guess. But like everybody... It's like having a dog out there. Yeah, yeah. Everybody had got these golden eagles. So it's just like, yeah, he's just got a golden eagle. <laughs> so it's quite, and then we, we went through... Uh, Kazakhs, because went through Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, went through every stand, you know. But in Kazakhstan, uh, went to Almaty and they'd organised a live kill. So they'd got the guy come out with the, like the full wizard's kit on and everything, the proper wizard hat on, uh, you know, the, 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 the baggy sleeves and, and all this kind of stuff. And he brought this eagle out and then they put a rabbit out and sent it, and it cost five grand apparently. So... But it's quite fascinating wow. to watch, you know, because yeah. yeah, quite rare, I suppose, to see that in act, to see it live. Mm. Wow. So it was quite, yeah, privileged to see it. So then you become, you go to private security contract to a multi-millionaire businessman, an entrepreneur, and strike up an amazing friendship. Yeah, so mm. I, that that that's a guy in Leeds who um, his name's Jeffrey, and um, he invented. Uh, vehicle tracking, pioneering vehicle tracking. Um, so vehicle telematics and so on and so forth. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, I, I obviously prior to this, I, I, I didn't know him. I didn't know anything about vehicle telematics or anything. Um, but I got a call from some friends of mine who said, you know, we're struggling. 
um, this, that, and the other, a sensitive issue in Leeds. Could you come and shed some light on it? So um, I went up there, shed some light on it, and became friends with him. Uh, and to this day, you know, we're, we're closest friends. So, yeah, fantastic thing, you know, and uh, he's a great guy, yeah. Maritime security. Yeah, I... Um, so that came about by a guy down at Hereford who was um, an ex-sergeant major who I worked under, um, a guy called Phil. Um, he's had his own, or he had, I think he had half of a half of a company, and his other friend had half of the other half of the company, and they were out doing um, maritime security in the Gulf of Aden against the Somali pirates. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd phoned him up, spoke to. Um, a mutual friend who was the ops manager in England and said, you know, what well, if I come down and speak to you? Yeah, come down, come down. And went just went down and it's like, when can you go? So flew out there to Salala in uh, Oman. Uh, I did a, a month uh, on the boats up and down the Gulf of Aden, stopping off in Djibouti, um, all manner of stuff. And, um, and then I became the ops manager and uh, looked after the operations for him for the next five months. Stayed out there for six months, and then I came home. Um, but that was a that was a, a, a great thing, you know. We lived uh, in a villa, literally one meters pathway, and then onto the beach, and then the sea. And it was just. Did just, you encounter any pirates? Um, I n I never saw any. No. Yeah. Um, what we, what what I did nearly do was, um, <laughs> so the ship pulls in at. Um, off the coast of Djibouti, about 32 nautical miles off the coast of Djibouti. At that time, this was sort of, these transits were were new to the company. So we'd got what's known as like an agent in Djibouti, who was an ex-legionnaire called Johnny, I think. A British guy, but he's been in the French Foreign Legion. And he was going to facilitate the back and forth from the ship to land. So obviously you think, you never met, I've never met the guy. You think um, it's going to be a white guy on a on a boat, and so on and so forth, and you're gonna he's going to make himself known to you and all this kind of stuff. Well, lo and behold, as the, as they're coming towards us, it's two black guys in the same boats as what the pirates use, this eighteen foot skiff. So obviously, I was like up for opening fire, you know, because <laughs> guess what? By now, our ship, which is like three hundred and thirty meters long, has come has come to a come to a halt. You know, so so yeah, so we're we're literally wallowing in, like anybody can come and take us. Um, so I, I I was ready to start firing, you know, and then all of a sudden they came over the radio and like it, it's us, Mr. Johnny Sanders, and all this kind of oh. stuff. Like so, but um, that was such a strange strange period of time because everything was just not how you would have wanted it. So like. You're 32 nautical miles at sea. It's pitch black. There's no life vests. There's no sat-nav. There's nothing. You've just got two black lads who you've never met before. You don't know whether they're right-uns or wrong-uns. And we're bashing through the sea. The waves are like six foot. And, I, and I'm thinking, this is, if all goes wrong, what are we doing? You know, what are we, who are we calling? What are we doing? Because nobody knows we're here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, we we make we make it to to the port. Two days later, we come back, and we're coming out early morning, and we <coughs> can see in the distance this massive furore in the sea, like 
froth and everything. And there's a slick on the water, an oil slick. As we get closer, it's a baleen whale that's like wow. three times its normal size and tiger sharks feeding on it. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so if you cast your mind back 48 hours before and we're bashing through and a shark feeds at night, yeah. we're bashing through the water and like, oh, dearie me. And I was just like, that is so bad. (laughs) And then the next thing was, we speak to this Johnny and we're like, listen, this this 18-foot skiff thing's no good. Don't worry about that. I've got a proper boat coming. Well, when this proper boat came, it was like some pleasure cruiser off Lake Windermere. It had got no keel. So, you know, when something hasn't got a keel and it's, it's, it's on choppy water... It's just rocking from side to side. Oh. Uh, and I mean, there were tons of us with green faces and all kinds of stuff. You had to lay down and, yeah, so anyway, that was that. Were that. But it, it all, t- you know, it were all, it were all all right. We um, we got the, he organised the weapons from the French Foreign Legion, these Dragunov sniper rifles. And when we got up to, back up to uh, Salala, we didn't have the permissions to land with them. So we threw them in the sea. We had to ditch them in the sea, throw them in the sea, all the ammunition, everything, the sights and everything. Um, Otherwise, then, you would have ended up like the Chennai Five. Y- yes. It? We had, we exa- had one of yeah, them on here. Yeah. We ended up in prison in yeah, India. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Without the permissions. So then when we get to the port, it's like you're not supposed to have body armour either. They don't like these type of security things. So I was in the port, in the port trying to get the body armour to stay under the water throwing it into the into the water and trying to but it kept floating because oh. it was body armor that had been it had been bought from SBS lads so it's like got this flotation thing so <laughs> so anyway so you know the steps like down the side of the in, in, in down the side of the key and into the water so I was down there sort of like six foot under jamming the jamming the body armor behind the steps and trying to keep it there <laughs> so we didn't get caught um so yeah then you go check in you know wet through everyone's like well, what's he been doing <laughs> so it's, uh, so anyway, that's oh. that's what we've been doing, and uh, I, I came home. Yeah, I came home after six months, mm. and that was it. I'd done enough. So from Oman <laughs> to Kabul, I love how blasé you are about everything. There you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think the thing is because I think there's there's probably lads out there who've done the plenty of them who've done the same as me. You know, so um, so modest. So, well, <laughs> I think, you know, to. I'd gone, uh, yeah, I'd, I think I went back to Kabul after that. Um, I think, and I think that was for the Centre of in, Center for International Development, uh, State University New York. And I think what that is, is it, it's, so the State University of New, York, New York's got a set of academics called the Centre for International Development. They bid for aid money, sometimes US aid money or whatever it is. And then they take that money to a developing country and they capacity building in in one form or another. And the project that they were doing at that time was in Kabul and it was with the Afghanistan parliament and they were capacity building. Um, So they were going and teaching them really how to be an an effective government and effective parliamentary and all this kind of stuff. Uh, And that's what, so I was responsible for around about, I think it was 18 expats and about 92 um, local nationals for their security. Um, so I did that you know, 45 days the first time because it, it was more like an audit thing to do for them and see what what they needed, what they didn't need because they did have a security provider who wasn't doing what they should have been doing. Mm. So there was, um, 
shortfalls and, and gaps in, in security and risk. Um, and I highlighted those. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so it was, it was back to back to working for media companies. Yeah, I, at that time I met with a guy who was a friend of mine. I'd known him previously. Um, he was working with New York Times, and he said, "I think you'd fit in. Why don't you come across?" I went across, and we had something to eat and all that kind of stuff, coffees, teas, uh, and then I left. I left that previous job and and started with them. But the first the first rotation for them was in back in Baghdad. I did four weeks then. I think I came home, quickly turned around and went straight out to Afghanistan again, um, and and started uh, started with the New York Times. Yeah. What does so, diligence investigations mean? Um, so diligence um, investigations is um, a company in London. Um, it was pre previously in in the Middle East, doing the same type of stuff as what I've just talked about, you know, saber and all that type of stuff, and then they come back to London and they did. Um, they did investigations, corporate investigations, um, due diligence, things like that. Um, and they were predominantly getting their work from um, the Russians, oh. you know, um, yeah. So You're able to talk about these Russians? Um, yeah, these I Russians. think so, yeah. <laughs> um, so they predominantly got their work through one guy who was... Um, Representing one arm of a group of uh, a group, um, and that group is owned by um, qu quite a very big name who's on the sanctions list. Um, you know, pro prob probably a personal friend of uh, Vladimir Putin's, um, and he was passing the work, and a lot of the work was for ENRC, the Eurasian, uh, Eurasian National Resources Company, who go around and um, e exploit developing countries for mineral wealth and so on and so forth. Um, and it was it was like recovering um, assets, recovering money. There was tons of jobs, uh, and I was involved in, in quite a few. One where a mine uh, in Brazil had been, it had been sold with false licensing for uh, transport and export of iron ore. And so ENRC were trying to take Zamin, an Indian company, um, to court over it, this, that, and the other. So, and they'd got somebody to flip and come onto their side and tell their story of how these fake licenses go. <laughs> and so, I was provided as a, a bodyguard to that person, and he was also a person of a politically exposed person. You know, so his family had been very senior in the government in um, in Brazil. So we travelled all around Brazil. He was very well known. Um, his name is very, very well known. You know, any hurry moments. Um, um, yeah, because so in all of this, when he flipped sides, he'd he'd upset a lot of people in Brazil because these businesses run far and deep, uh, and a lot of connections. And one of the one of the people that he had upset was a guy called Carlos Moura, who was the head of naval intelligence at the time. Mm. Um, you know, he'd got his own estate, and you know, people had been on holiday there and visited, and there'd been accidents. Um, as you can imagine, um, so, <laughs> so we'd we'd been going back to Brazil, and, and one of me, one of one of my um, underlying fears was that some of the people that he'd gone against had federal weight. Mm. Um, they had the police in the pockets and things like that. Well, you know, anything can happen in in São Paulo. Anything can happen in Rio. Anything can happen in Fortaleza. But the more you start going. 
uh, to the northeast, it's more like the last frontier. It's like the jungle on one side and the sea on the other. And if my, my thing was is that if we got stopped and a corrupt policeman says they resisted arrest, so I shot them, who's going to say any different? Who's going to do any different? And that was always my fear there, is that we lacked that... We just like that real-time communication and we like the process to, to, to log anything or in the, you know, in, uh, successfully log anything in the event of anything happening. So we were really, I mean, it was just me and him. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and it, 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 you know, it just, yeah, so. Would you say that was um, your scariest experience? I think, yeah, I, I think because we were there for five and six weeks at a time and these are places where things Brazil is not a place to act up. Mm -mm. It's like Russia. You don't start playing up there, you no. know, because um, mm. you you cannot come home. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we were in Brazil, and uh, whilst they were great places, it is just a place where anything can happen and frequently does, mm -hmm. and uh, you'll never just, just never hear about it, you know. We so. just watched Benedict not come home, didn't we? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. What, the film, what was it called, The Courier? It's, um, oh no, I don't know it's that. A brilliant no. film, really, yeah. About a, an English spy who heads over to Russia. Oof, yeah. yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so, definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I will yeah. do. Yeah, definitely, I definitely have a look at something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we 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 were out there. Um, had a great time. Went to all of it, you know. We, we, we took an holiday to Barbados, all paid for by by the Russians, and you know they said, "Listen, get out there, Neil." And you know, you, you're not here to be punished, so have an holiday yourself and all oh, that. Oh, wow, that's we're, first. Yeah, we went to Sandy Lane and <laughs> sort of like all laid on, you know. And uh, Yeah, it was a great, great thing. You know, good, good, good thing, you know. What about the Maltese Falcon? Um, Speak to Jen slash Sean. Yeah, yeah. So that is a situation where um, the... Uh, <laughs> He's phrasing this one carefully. Yeah. Someone... <laughs> Someone came to me and said, um, I know this guy. I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know this guy. He needs help. Um, he's tagged. Um, you know, and he's, he's going to get extradited back to Sweden. Um, okay, what's he done for, for to be extradited back to Sweden? Hmm. He's, uh, like, sort of misappropriated sort of hundreds of millions out of the Swedish pension fund. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, they were asking me if I could facilitate um, sort of getting him away away from that extradition, you know. Um, so... I do remember the details of this, actually. <laughs> what happened? It's always that dinner, but I, th yeah. I think for in the interest of national security... We yeah. can't. We cannot elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So any, anyway, anyway, I had to refuse. And, oh, uh, you did, yeah. <laughs> I had to refuse and say I can't help you on that one. That yeah, that was hardcore. Yeah. yeah. Oh shame. Yeah. Shame to view meeting, <laughs> meeting Big Joe Egan. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was staying in an hotel in Doncaster and uh, I, I, it's a place where a lot of boxers had been previously. Just just. Tons and tons of world champions. Um, and the, there's a guy in uh, in Doncaster, an ex-professional rugby player called Andy Booker, who was had that connection with Mike Tyson, uh, so on and so forth. Um, it, it, tons of boxers, you know. Um, anybody, Joe Calzaghe had been there. Um, 
Anthony Joshua had been there. Although I have met Anthony Joshua because I trained at his gym in uh, in London, BXR on on Chilton Street. So I met him before. What's he like? Um, he was a nice guy. He yeah. just won world title a week before from uh, Klitschko, um, and he was he's a good guy. He's mm. a good guy. You know, he um, um, or he beat Klitschko the week before. I you know. Um, but I met him as a nice guy, come up shaking hands. But then again, you see, I was in his gym and it's an ex it's an extortionate amount of money to be membership. And I, and I'm sure he thought that I'd paid. Oh. But I hadn't. I was oh. there with, I was there with one of these guys who, who the Russians were paying for. So that's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I was there. But he come up shaking hands anyway, very nice fella. Um, but I'd met Tim Witherspoon, former two-time World Heavyweight Champion at this hotel, trained with him. Um, and the guy... The guy who, who has the hotel had said to me, look, you know, uh, Joe Egan's here, this, that, and the other. Um, I've told him about you, you know, and you should introduce yourself if you see him about, because um, he'd like to meet you. So that's that's more or less what happened. He was, Joe was in the gym at the, the, I went down to train, he was already there, uh, and introduced me, oh, I've heard all about you, and, and obviously I've heard all about him type thing. And we just, I mean, just got on famously, you know. He's and, a great guy. Yeah, fantastic guy, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, he was just... Um, uh, well, and and so much so that that's how come I met you, Sean and Jen. So, what a privilege! <laughs> <laughs> and check out the podcast we did with Big Joe Egan, from Mike Tyson to Michael Francis' stories, and also check out his book, which we have published for him. Big Joe Egan, the toughest white man on the planet, as described by Mike Tyson, mm, yeah. <laughs> and 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 I suspect he is as well. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's in my mountain, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great guy. Definitely. Yeah. So out of everything you've been through in your entire life. Firstly, who's the favourite that you've looked after? Um, it, probably the guy for the Russians. You know, I had a good carry on with him. He was demanding at times. He was challenging at times. Mm. But we, we had a good carry on, you know what I mean? And he, he, he'd, had a, he'd got a few quid. And it uh, wasn't it wasn't shy about looking after me with it, you know. I mean, you know, great aftershaves, great, but you know, bought me sh great shoes. Treat you like uh, a princess. <laughs> 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 but uh, you know, he tried to palm me off with some Versace stuff that clearly not me. But and I had to say no, thank you. But uh, yeah, great guy. Closest to death moment. Uh, pr probably in Baghdad somewhere along the line, you know. I lived in an hotel called the Alhambra. It was used as the, basically as the line for the mortars from uh, Al Qaeda. So any drop shot or anything like that with a mortar, or you know, and there were there were plenty of attacks and, and things like that. So yeah, I mean, there's been quite a few to be fair. It's um, so I won't be able to pick one, but uh, there's there's quite a few along the Is way. Is it going off all throughout the night? You can hear. Yeah, it. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To just um, not sleep and under those conditions. No, or? I mean. Uh, one night there was sort of some firefight and we went out onto the balcony and, and like, you know, the, the rounds were whizzing past literally on the balcony. Ooh. So it's like, you know, so, yeah, it's just a bit, it's just a bit day in, day out, you know, and yeah. you're a bit like, it's like when you used to do it, so you used to do two months on, one month off. And when you came home for that month, it would take like sort of a week to settle down. And then the last week would be getting yourself geared up mentally and physically to go back. So there really was only ever two weeks off, if you know if you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, a lot of situations uh, that I've been through, you know. 
Are you going to get a book out about your life? Intense. <laughs> <laughs> that depends if you're going to write it for me, Sean. <laughs> if you're going to write it for me, the answer is yes. <laughs> we will publish it, but we've got to figure out a way it's going to get written. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll leave that in you and Jen's capable hands. In conclusion, Neil, is there anything you'd like to say to the viewers? I'd just like to say, you know, um, I hope it's been entertaining for you. And, uh, you know, thanks ever so much for listening. Yeah, it was really well structured, just going from all these hot spots of the world, basically, <laughs> yeah. wasn't it? I'm sure we've got yeah. many more. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we can we can we can always we can all there's always plenty more to put in. Um I just thought I'd give you the bare bones, you know. So we can always yeah. Can so always let us know more. in the comments what you thought of today's video. If you fancy some organic cotton clothing, boomer and Jen. <laughs> Links in the description box. <laughs> Come give us a hug. Oh, oh. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Oh, absolute Thanks pleasure. Thank you. Fantastic. Cheers, You're a natural speaker. Cheers, Sean. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you.